0: As we remain standing, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that by your spirit, you will teach us today and grow us for love in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Please take a seat. Well, thank you again for having us. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be here, we're very excited to be here, and uh, we really look forward, excuse me for just one second, I'm <coughs> sorry about this, just, just as you're about to get up you get an attack of the coughs. <coughs> um, we're really looking forward to coming back uh, a little later in the year and spending a bit more time with you and getting an opportunity to get to know you as our partners in ministry and perhaps discussing some of the experiences we've had, you know, often there's lots of questions about about Muslims, about Islam and uh, about ministry, I'm so sorry, about ministry to Muslims, you might have to bear with me a little bit this morning. Well, we've spent a lot of time with Muslims in the last few years, uh, obviously in the Middle East, where 97% or so of Jordan are Muslim people, but also in southwest Sydney. Um, After coming back, uh, we moved back into our little house in Wylie Park, which is just next to Lakemba, same postcode. And um, uh, probably a little less than half the population down there are are Muslim from different backgrounds. Um, So our kids, you know, the the ethnic groups down there are mostly sort of dark-haired, You saw Luke's hair before, I've got a great photo of him sitting up the front of assembly um, at the local school where they go, the local public school. I'm at the back, he's at the front of the audience and there's this sea of dark hair and then this like radioactively glowing orb of blonde, you know. Um, But they're used to kind of sticking out, so we're really thankful for that. Uh, Most of the women at the school, or most of, uh, certainly the Muslim women at the school wear a veil of some kind um, in different kinds depending on their ethnic background or their nationality and lots of the men around around are wearing you know traditional clothes and a prayer cap or something like that. Uh, It's very different to when we go and visit Sally's family, her parents who live up in Armidale in northern New South Wales which we we love going up there, it's beautiful. We notice when we go uh, how different, the people are there to where we live in Wiley Park. They're more like us. They look more like us. They speak more like us. I guess they think more like us in lots of ways. Um, I wonder what you think when you see a Muslim person, perhaps, you know, footage on the news or a picture or in person here in Sydney, when you're around the place, maybe a man in a long robe with a beard, wearing something on his head, a woman in a veil, uh, maybe even with her face covered. Sally has a very close friend in Jordan, a woman who is married to my best friend, actually, but who I've never seen because she covers completely in black, head to toe, eyes covered, gloved hands. She looks like a, a hat stand with a black you know, sheet over it just moving around. I wonder what you think when you see that kind of image. Um, It can be kind of intimidating, can't it? It can provoke some kind of negative feelings of different kinds. Well, today in our reading of the Good Samaritan, this famous parable of Jesus, he's going to help us to stretch our minds and our hearts, to think the way about Muslims and other people who are very different to us, the same way that he thinks about them. So let's get into the story. In verse 25, this expert in the law comes up to Jesus. Now, he's an expert in the Jewish law, in the Torah, uh, with the first five books of, of the Bible, the law of Moses. He's a learned man. He knows his books. He's kind of a lawyer of religion, if you like. And he pops up and he asks Jesus a question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus knows that this guy's trying to test him. This happens to Jesus all the time. He is well used to people trying to test him and trick him. And so he answers with a question of his own. Well, what does the law say? You're the expert. What do you think the answer is? And the guy gives a great answer, actually, to that question. He says quoting two separate sentences from different places in the Torah, in the Jewish law, one from Deuteronomy, one from Leviticus. He says, Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind and love your neighbour as you love yourself. It's a cracker of an answer. Now Jesus had been preaching up to this point in, in various places and he had said this already. He had said that the whole law could be summed up in those two commands. So it's likely that this expert in the law had heard Jesus put those two commands together when he was speaking somewhere else because before Jesus, no one had really put these two together in quite that way. Love God with your whole self and love your neighbour as you love yourself. And so Jesus says to him, yep, good answer. Nailed it. Do that. And you'll receive eternal life now you might be thinking oh is that all jesus all i have to do is love god with all my heart soul mind and strength and love my neighbor as much as i love myself and i'll receive eternal life no (laughs) no big deal it's that is a pretty high standard isn't it that's the way i think when i hear jesus answer the expert in the lord doesn't quite think that way he's not used to thinking that way He knows this command sounds hard but he's used to dealing with quite difficult legal, religious legal um, instructions and rulings, detailed laws and so he asks another question and we're told it's because he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to save himself. He wanted to make sure that he was on the right side of the line between good and not good enough. He wanted to be able to carefully define the edge of the law. What exactly Jesus thought he should do in detail. You may know that in Jesus' day, um, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the experts of the law like this man, the Pharisees, uh, they loved this kind of thing. Now the law of Moses, uh, the Torah, it's already got lots of details. There's detailed laws, for example, about what to do if you discover mould in your house about what you need to do, step by step, who you need to tell, when you need to do it, and how long for. There's even a, there's even a command, 613 commands uh, all told in, in, the, uh, in the Torah, not just the Ten Commandments, there's lots of other little ones, including that you mustn't eat the sciatic nerve of an animal, a clean animal, that you've butchered for, for eating. Very specific, the sciatic nerve... So there's a lot of detail in the law already and over their history the Jewish scholars, they codified these laws, counted them, sorted them into categories, uh, different laws they had to obey, different sins they might commit and they added even greater detail and even put fences around those laws so not only would you not break the law but you couldn't get anywhere near the law even to break it. A great example of that is the fact that uh, they were commanded not to take the name of the Lord in vain. They thought, well, it's a holy thing, the name of the Lord, we don't want to use it in the wrong way, so what we'll do is just never even say it. And so to this day, we don't see the name of God printed in our Old Testaments. Instead of Yahweh, which is his name, we see the word Lord, because when a Jew recites the text, they see the word Yahweh, but it's got little marks around it to indicate that they better not slip up and actually say it, they should say the word for Lord. And Jesus was very critical of this kind of thing. He's not against detail. He was a law-abiding Jew in every Jew, rather in every sense, but he was against when detail clouded out more important things, the real heart of the law. And so you might remember at one point, he has a massive go at the Pharisees for giving a tenth of their mint and dill and cumin, right? <laughs> their spices, tithing, but forgetting justice and mercy and faithfulness. When those big things were just completely crowded out by all the detail. Even now, uh, in Jewish tradition, there's, uh, there's a great deal of detail. I read this webpage of uh, a number of, of things you might not know I think it was like 11 things you might not know about kosher laws, food laws for Jews. Um, Some of them were incredibly detailed and there are differences in the Jewish community about some of them but at the end it said the Jewish kosher laws are complex and even for observant Jews there's always more to learn. However for the unobservant Jew the best starting point is simply not to eat dairy products with meat. So you, you may be aware that One of the most basic kosher rules is no dairy and meat. They're separated by physical distance and by time if you eat them. So the point is, you start with the basics and then you get more and more detailed as you grow in faith. And there's a sort of realism in that, isn't there? Like, you don't, if you convert to Judaism, or if you're an unobservant Jew who wants to sort of get on board with the program, you don't have to start with the whole system from day one. You can kind of take your time, do the basics, put in the basic building blocks, and over time, as you mature, you'll sort of put on like garments of clothing, these other detailed laws. And you can keep doing that forever, basically, because there is so much detail in these laws. And Muslims actually think quite a lot like that too. Uh, These are set times for you to pray in the day, five times, dependent on the sun. Uh, These are the words that you use to pray, the same words uh, at certain times, a certain number of repetitions in Arabic, set words, even if you're one of the 80% of Muslims in the world who don't speak Arabic, you still use Arabic in the mosque as you say your prayers or at home, Uh, before you pray you need to wash up to your elbow a certain number of times, uh, you need to wash inside your mouth and nostrils, behind your ears, you need to wash your feet in this way, unless you're wearing socks, in which case you wipe water from your heel to your toe, and very detailed. And you don't have to start with all that, you can kind of, you know, as you go, you can assimilate more of that detail into your the practice of your religion. But that way of thinking, the way that, of thinking that's shared by this expert in the law is totally opposite to the way Jesus thinks. This expert in the law, he wants to know who his neighbour is. He doesn't ask, um, how can I love my neighbour best? Or, what does it mean to love my neighbour? Uh, that might be a better question. No, he wants to justify himself. He wants to make sure he's on the right side of the line between good and not good enough, to know the boundaries of what he has to do and what he doesn't have to do. So when he says, who is my neighbour, what's he expecting from a Jewish rabbi, from this teacher, Jesus? Well, he's expecting a list that he can manage. Now, it might be detailed, but he'll start at the top and kind of work down the list It's going to include... This is a list of who's his neighbour and who's not. It's going to include other law-abiding Jews. They're going to be at the top of the list. Uh, Members of his own extended family, certainly, will be on the list. Actual neighbours in his town, uh, probably. And he knows the Jewish law, he's an expert, and so he knows that they're supposed to treat a stranger the same as a native in the land. And so... It may include, this list he's expecting from Jesus, strangers who live in his town as well. He's expecting a list, and then he asks, who is my neighbour? Clarify this for me, so I know who I need to apply this to and who I don't. And that's when Jesus tells his story. There's a bit of a problem with this story, not because there's any problem with Jesus or his telling of it, but there's a bit of a problem for us. You know, uh, there's a big gap... In, uh, in time and space, because we live you know, fourteen or 15,000 kilometres from the Middle East, uh, from Palestine, uh, and in culture between us and the people who Jesus is talking to in this parable. Uh, we don't have the same kinds of cultural assumptions or biases or we don't share the same language. And so, you know, for example, when Jesus talks about shepherds and their sheep... We know what he's talking about, right? We know what a sheep is and we have an idea of a shepherd. But that's not part of our daily experience. Certainly not part of my daily experience. And so I don't really feel the heart of what he's saying in the way that I think he intended people to feel it and to understand it. And so when we read a parable like the Good Samaritan, we need the background, don't we? It doesn't really stand on its own two feet. You can't really understand it unless you understand a bit about the characters. So who are the characters? Uh, The first character is this man who's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, we have to assume he's a Jewish man because nothing else is said about him and Jesus is a Jew speaking to Jews. And he's beaten up on the way and robbed and stripped and left for dead. The next man to come along... Is a priest. Now, who's the priest? He's uh, someone who works uh, at the temple in some way, in the serving a function in the people's worship with sacrifices and so on. He's a holy man. He's a religious man. And when he sees this uh, man left for dead on the side of the road, he deliberately crosses to the other side and carries on his way. Next guy to come along is a Levite. Very similar. He's from the uh, the tribe of Levi one of the 12 tribes of Israel, set apart as a tribe uh, to be dedicated to the service of God in the temple. Uh, And so he's a holy man as well. He's a religious man. He does the same thing, sees him, crosses the road and continues to his destination. The third man to come along, the Samaritan, the good Samaritan as we call him, is from Samaria. So you may know Samaria is just north of Judea in Palestine. And the Samaritan people and the Jews did not get on. They were related through history, uh, but they'd separated in the past and the Samaritans had kind of interbred with the other local inhabitants. They had a kind of their own version of uh, of faith in God. They had some of their own books. They had their own religious practices and holy sites because they didn't have access to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, And so this samaritan is no friend of the jew who he ends up helping as far as the jews were concerned the samaritans were unclean untrustworthy they had a distorted religion sinners they were sinners so we can explain all that right but that doesn't really provoke you know jesus told this story to provoke a reaction in the expert in the law and the people who the other people who were listening and when you have all that information in your head it doesn't <laughs> you know what's going on but it doesn't really provoke the same reaction does it We don't have the same deep cultural sensitivities these people had the generations of accumulated stuff between the Jews and the Samaritans and relationships with the priestly order and all of that sort of stuff we're not going to feel it the way that Jesus wants us to feel it So here's a very brief retelling that may have a similar impact on us to what this this first telling of Jesus had on uh, the people who were listening to him. There's a man heading up to the Blue Mountains from Sydney. And on his way, some criminals uh, beat him over the head, Uh, they rob him, they beat him up, um, they strip him and then they just leave him by the side of the road for dead. And along comes, on the same route, an Anglican minister... He sees the guy there. It's not his problem. Someone else will look after it. He crosses the road to the other side and he keeps on going. A little bit later, church lady comes along, salt of the earth, faithful pillar of the church community, sees the guy by the side of the road, crosses over, continues on her way. A little bit later, along comes a Muslim. He looks at this Man who's been beaten to within an inch of of death and he feels really sorry for him. And so he puts him in his car, takes him to emergency and sits there for a long time waiting, checking on him, making sure he's okay, asking questions of the medical staff. And then he starts to pay money for this guy's recovery. He's happy to, to pay whatever it costs until this guy is back to full health. A Muslim. Does that change how you hear the story? Did you kind of get a little bit of a feel for the discomfort that Jesus hearers must have felt? I mean, I bet this Muslim, you know, he had a beard and a long robe and a prayer cap on, the whole kind of picture, right? Who was truly a neighbor to the man? Not the senior minister, not Ethel, the president of the Mother's Union or whatever. A Muslim. I've actually seen something like this in the Middle East. Um, uh, It's quite common for people in the Middle East to help strangers. We visited Israel once with Sally's parents, who are no spring chickens, you know, they're getting on a bit. We found ourselves in an awkward situation on the way back. We crossed the Jordan River, uh, and we're coming up out of the Jordan Valley in Jordan, back to where we lived. A friend of ours had picked us up in our old rattler of a car, We're coming up these really steep hills out of the Jordan Valley. It's 45 degrees, really humid. And, of course, you know, the radiator blows up. And so we're stuck by the side of the road on this steep slope, really hot, Uh, Sally's parents in the back of the car. And we're not prepared for this. We don't have any water or anything. And people just start to stop. People stop to see if we're all right. Uh, a, A car full of young... Arab blokes stops to give us water, hand out water bottles. And i got this great photo of uh, all these young blokes crowded around our car with the bonnet up looking at the engine. You know, I don't think they helped at all <laughs> in the end, but they wanted the help. They had stopped and they really wanted the help. This is part of living in a collective culture, a corporately minded culture, where people feel a responsibility to other people regardless of who they are which I think we just don't have in our society, at least anymore. We're very individualistic, aren't we? If I see someone stranded by the road, I think, well, if I even think about it, I think, well, they're probably NRMA members, right? <laughs> They've got a mobile phone, I'm sure they can call something, and I'm going 110 anyway, and it's over. Well, the lawyer expects a list when he's when he asks, who is my neighbour? A manageable list he can kind of work through. And what he gets instead is his whole system blown out of the water. Jesus destroys his attempts to kind of draw lines and codify behaviour, to categorise things, to make clear the boundaries, so he knows what he has to do and what he doesn't need to bother with. And he does that by telling him to follow the example of the Samaritan, which must have been a kick in the teeth, To this expert in the Jewish law. Imagine Jesus telling us this story and finishing with a Muslim. A Muslim is the punchline. Jesus saying to us, imagine this be like the Muslim. Jesus wants this, this man to go home with no way of justifying himself anymore. He wants him to stop trying to clarify the edges of his obligations and instead live fully for God, literally live wholeheartedly and whole-mindedly for God and for his neighbour, which means everyone, even a Samaritan, loving them as he loves himself. It's an extension, isn't it, of Jesus' command to love your enemies. I mean, Jews and Samaritans were enemies. You could say in some way that Muslims are our enemy. I actually don't believe that. I think most Muslims in the world are just like you and me. They're very different culturally and in language and so on, but they just—they love their kids. They just want to get on in their lives. Um, but you—you—you know—you may ha- even have in your mind the idea that that they are an enemy of ours, perhaps as Christians, or perhaps as a culture, that they're our enemy. And this is a command. This is an extension of Jesus' command to love our enemies. I've had Muslims tell me on numerous occasions that they are commanded to love their neighbours. Uh, Their prophet, Muhammad, peace be upon him, they'll say, commands them to love their neighbours. Seven houses in this direction, right, to there and there, and seven houses in this direction. And a number of times I've sort of tried to play the trump card, and so I've glibly said, well, Jesus tells us to love our enemies, you know, Um, trying to kind of outdo them with my religions better than your religion, which is not a good strategy, by the way. But I'm a bit of a slow learner and they look a bit puzzled and they give me this look like you really have no idea what you're talking about do you love your enemy and it doesn't really, that doesn't really make any sense does it love your enemy uh, certainly I think to most human beings that is a completely unreasonable and unrealistic way of thinking The command to love your enemies, to treat all people as neighbours and to love them as you love yourself, only makes sense in the light of the Gospel. It only makes sense if we remember that actually we're God's enemies. We are the Samaritans, if you like. We're the ones who are unclean and untrustworthy and have distorted beliefs. Sinners. That's us. And Jesus came to seek and save people like us. And as people who've been saved by God and brought near to him by his grace, we want to live like Jesus now and we want to follow his commands. And so how does Jesus want us to live? He finishes this story by saying, after the expert in the law through gritted teeth admits that it was the one who had mercy on this poor robbed man who acted like a neighbour, Jesus tells him, Go and do likewise. What does it mean to go and do likewise, to be a loving neighbor to every person? Well, the Samaritan uh, does a couple of things. He notices the man, he breaks his journey, he spends quite a lot of time with him, he stays overnight with him at least one night, um, and then he uses his money for this man in an open ended kind of way. You remember he says to the innkeeper, you know take this money and when I come back whatever other expenses you've incurred because of this poor bloke I'll cover those as well and I think I think there are there are at least three suggestions um, that pop out of this about how to go and do likewise for us and I'm preaching these to myself today as much as anyone else these are the three be inefficient be extravagant and be extensive. Be inefficient means be conscious about how time conscious our society is. We are so driven by the clock and this Samaritan doesn't let that's not part of his thinking. Uh, in, in modern 21st century Australia uh, we're always either rushing you know to somewhere or home from somewhere aren't we and it's hard to fit things in and be inefficient in your use of time find someone who's in need who you know and just waste time on them as a way of loving them as your neighbor second one's be extravagant you know he gives this money and it's quite open-ended he doesn't even know how much he's going to be on the hook for this um good samaritan Um, I think that's Jesus encouraging us to spend money on people and be generous without any thought about repayment or even without any kind of I'm investing this money to serve them in the hope that they'll become Christian or something down the line and boy we really want people to become followers of Christ don't we that's the best thing that can happen for them but without any of that Jesus wants us to be extravagant in the way that we use our money and not use things like stewardship as, a, as an excuse to hold stuff back from people in need who we come across. And lastly, be extensive in your love. I want to be someone who welcomes and loves even people who, are in, in my mind, are the enemy. I don't know who your enemies are. I'm thankful that I don't actually have any real enemies in the world. I live in a place and time where... I don't have to worry about that. But I think we create enemies in our minds. Maybe for you it's someone who has just completely incompatible political views. Uh, Just dead opposed to what you think is right. Maybe it's someone in your family you've just got a long-standing problem with uh, that just seems unsolvable and may never be solved. Perhaps they're your enemy in your mind. Uh, maybe it's someone who wants to shut down uh, Christians engaging in the public space. You know, There are people who would love nothing more than for all our churches to close and we're out of schools and our mouths are closed. Maybe it's those people who are your enemies. Or maybe it's the Muslim. Maybe you turn over the... I mean, every second page of the newspaper is about some bombing these days, isn't it? Or someone doing something terrible in the name of their God. Maybe it's the Muslim who speaks differently, and looks differently, and believes very different things. Maybe it's the Muslim woman in the scarf, or the Muslim man in sandals with the long beard. But if a Samaritan can be a neighbour to a Jew, then you can be a neighbour to a Muslim. I want to finish by sharing briefly about a couple of other friends of ours, Samir and his wife Lubnam. Uh, Samir is, uh, he's Yemen, he was born in Yemen, but he moved 12 or 13 years ago to Damascus in Syria, started work there and met and fell in love with Lubna. They got married and war broke out in 2011 in Syria and they fled to Yemen, back to his family, um, to escape the, um, the trouble there. You may know that a war subsequently broke out in Yemen and so... Uh, knowing their luck they got caught up in that and they had to leave Yemen which is how they ended up in Jordan and how we ultimately came to know them. Uh, Difficult life for them in Yemen in uh, Jordan rather very uh, difficult circumstances it's illegal for Samir to work there's not a lot of good health care for them or their kids uh, or schooling there's a lot of discrimination from people uh, including other Arabs, Jordanians. Um, And the mosques there are either just swamped with people and or, they just feel like caring for refugees is not their problem. They said to Sally uh, and me one day, we love Christians, Christians have always helped us. Uh, We didn't quite know what to say when they said that to us, but on reflection, I realised that the reason for that, the reason why Christians have always been good to them, is because of Jesus. Jesus, this one who came at great cost to himself, the cost of his life, for his enemies, for people like us. And then commanded his followers, you've heard the story, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus, on the cross and in his resurrection. We thank you that we've been brought near to you by your mercy. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will give us the will and the ability to obey Jesus' command, that we will love you and that we will love everyone around us as we love ourselves please be with us father especially as individuals with different kinds of of enemies who might be in our family or somewhere else or far off who we have in our minds as as enemies we pray father you'd release us from thinking of them in a in a negative way We ask, Heavenly Father, that you'd give us your Holy Spirit to the point where we can love them as we love ourselves. And we thank you for this freedom to serve you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.